ChemJobber is one of chemistry's most read bloggers. Since 2008, CJ has amplified job postings to his readers and Twitter followers, identified trends in the chemical job market, and provided commentary on a range of practical issues of interest to chemists and chemical engineers. He has nearly 30,000 followers on Twitter, and he is the first resource to whom all or many of us in chemistry or chemistry-adjacent fields turned when we have found ourselves unemployed or looking for a new position. Since 2017, he has had a monthly column in Chemical and Engineering News, the primary trade publication of the American Chemical Society. I know I share the widely held sentiment that ChemJobber provides an enormous value to the community and does essentially all of it on his own time. ChemJobber, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for a very kind introduction, Darren. I'm really happy to be here. What is the most surprising use of ethylene oxide gas? <laughs> Uh, I don't know, but the the one that uh, always oh that's right there was something about uh, sanitizing herbs I think is what it was. Um, so in addition to sanitizing surgical implements, apparently it also sanitizes cinnamon and bay leaves. That's a pri that was a, a, a something I, I learned recently from you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I was really shocked, you know, because it doesn't, of course, it makes a lot of sense that uh, the herbs that you get at the grocery store are going to be somehow treated, whatever that looks like, uh, to make sure that they don't mold in your, I, it would be really interesting to know, uh, Darren, do you do any cooking? Are you? Uh... I do. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the oldest thing in your, in your spice cabinet is? Oh, that's crazy. Um, well, I have a, a couple of like mason jars full of cumin from the international market. Uh, probably one of those is uh, is at least a decade old. Yeah, I, I think we, uh, my wife and I have things that are like from before we were married a while back. So yeah, it's, uh, and, and so you never really think about it, you know, and it's the, that's the great thing about chemistry and chemicals is that they're, they're really deeply embedded in places that you didn't even know. How did you become interested in chemistry? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I was, I, I had this very misguided notion that I still sometimes have that I wanted to be a physician and uh, I, I met this challenge of organic chemistry as a sophomore and did actually quite poorly. Uh, the first time around, and then I ended up taking it again and really getting interested in it and then meeting the professor of my class and asking him for an undergraduate position in his laboratory doing research and um, did my first uh, uh, organometallic reaction and it was, you know, gorgeous, formed this beautiful orange complex and, you know, I, it, it's actually really funny that somebody, a graduate student said to me like, nothing you ever do will ever be this easy or beautiful. And <laughs> it's, it's really true that, you know, it's just, yeah. So that, that's, that's the story. Were your parents scientists? Uh, my father uh, was a lifetime electrical engineer and very, very, very much an engineer. Uh, and, so he formed my concept, my conception of engineering, which is that, uh, so he was a utility engineer. And so it's very much about uh, how the power gets from 
the substation to the customer and uh, just memories of my father sitting there with an engineering textbook and a green pad of graph paper and writing out his equations um, and you know <laughs> really didn't appeal to me much um, even though it, it sort of, it's very funny because I meet engineers now and they work at computers or they you know engineering has just as it's seemingly as broad applications if not broader than than chemistry and so you meet engineers who are primarily managers or primarily salespeople or primarily um, sometimes chemists and and I'm like uh, that that's not real engineering of course that that's a very pejorative description but uh, uh, my mom is a registered dietitian uh, or was a registered dietitian before she retired and so uh, very much uh, if I if I really think about it very much a conception that like engineering and and also biochemistry are kind of these two things that sort of core to, to life. Some might argue that synthetic organic chemistry has some, is similar to engineering philosophically. I don't know if you would agree with that uh, conception um, in the sense that you're sometimes trying to optimize something. You're almost always trying to build something. You know, at the end of the day, you want to be able to put something in a bottle. Right. Uh, I, I guess I'm a little bit I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little too literal there in the sense that engineers, so I believe there is actually a course taught for uh, the kind of old fashioned forms of engineering, the, you know, the classic, like my, my father would say, like, there are only four types of engineers, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, civil engineering. Um, and well, one of the courses is, is, uh, uh, is engineering economics. And so it's, that's actually a really interesting aspect of what they do is, is that like, they actually, I, I, I've been working recently with an engineer who's two years, I suspect out of college and his comfort and familiarity with basic, uh, economic calculations is shocking to me. I mean, this, I mean, it, it's just standard Excel spreadsheet sort of, you know, this is how much the raw materials cost. This is how much it's going to cost us to run the plant. And, and so I guess I kind of push back a little bit on that because the parameter that chemists are, are optimizing for is almost never money it's something else. It's yield, it's labor. And you can argue that as you scale up, it does equal money. But I, I just, I'm a little bit, it feels like, um, and I agree that the philosophical thing is almost always, uh, well, if we do, you could do it this way, but that's not practical. Therefore, we have to try to either, you know, I don't know, increase the turnover of the catalyst by changing its structure or uh, you know, go this different synthetic route. Yeah, interesting. I think we might we might touch on chemical engineering a little bit later. Um, how did you get your first job out of school? Uh, I, uh, as as I was saying before, I had a uh, 
kind of misguided thought process about going to medical school and was not successful with my applications and so ended up uh, seeing that there was a position available at a, uh, a, a town nearby where my college was that um, where I was living at the time uh, was very attractive because it's a, it's a basically a vacation town that happened to have a, a small uh, pharmaceutical uh, services firm there and uh, ended up working, uh, answering the ad, which the ad was great because it, it basically said like, we're looking for somebody who has a knowledge of chemistry, comfort in the laboratory and a sense of humor. And I'm like, well, I, I could do that. And, uh, and so I worked there for a year as an analytical chemist. What sector do you work in? I, I work in what I consider chemical, what I call chemical manufacturing, uh, which is a, a very boring, uh, much more of an economic term than anything else. But uh, what what the sector that I really work in is called custom chemical manufacturing. So it's this, uh, or I work for a uh, a custom manufacturing organization, and it is an organization that uh, manufactures um, chemicals to order for the customer. How well did your uh, undergraduate or PhD training prepare you for your current position? It, it prepared me pretty well in the sense that at the guts of the problems that I deal with are either engineering things, which I fundamentally or, you know, plant related equipment issues or regulatory problems. And these are all the things that I, I don't have any expertise in and have just learned on the job. And then the other aspect of it has almost always been chemical. It's either a synthetic problem or it's an analytical problem. I feel very prepared because every time I, it seems like once a day or once a week, I will remember some fact that I learned in graduate school or undergraduate that, or some thought process that I learned. And then past that, it's the, it's the literature knowledge. It's the realization that if you don't know, probably your PI knows. If your PI doesn't know, probably there's somebody down the hall who knows. Somebody knows, has published it, and you haven't found it yet. What journals have you found to be the most useful in your line of work? The, the journal that I like reading the most uh, and probably the regrettably now the only journal that I read with any regularity is Organic Process Research and Development. Um, it's a really interesting one and I think a really nice uh, platform and showcase for uh, the varying synthetic work that's uh, going on in the pharmaceutical industry. How would you characterize the connectivity between organic synthetic chemistry, uh, process chemistry, and chemical engineering? How do, in what ways do you interact in your job? Our job is within synthetic organic chemistry is to do things that are at large scale. So my organization fundamentally won't talk to you as a customer 
if your order is less than 20 kilos. So that's 42 pounds uh, or 44 pounds, excuse me. So that's a bag of flour. It's a 50 pound bag of flour. If you won't commit to ordering that amount, which must cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, if you won't commit to ordering that amount for three years, we won't talk to you. Sorry, I got off on a little bit of a tangent there. Oh, not um, at all. Um, so the process chemistry aspect of this is, is that what we need to do needs to be safe. It needs to be robust. It needs to be uh, robust in the sense that the uh, reaction parameters need to be wide, not narrow. In the plant, you don't have the control of everything that you necessarily do at a 100 milliliter scale. Uh, it needs to be uh, reproducible in the sense that uh, the failure of a single reaction in the laboratory is disappointing, but not the end of the world. The failure of a single batch in the plant is, uh, is a direct harm to the organization um, from a monetary uh, perspective. In terms of synthetic complexity, what sorts of molecular weights um, are we talking about if, if I'm going to order uh, 20 kilos of something or, or much more than that? Um, how many synthetic steps, how many stereocenters, what, what sorts of compounds are we talking about? My answer to that question, and I've been in many customer meetings, uh, my answer to that question is it depends. It depends on how difficult it is. If you're buying all the stereo centers, you can have as many stereo centers as you'd like. Uh, if the reaction to set the stereo centers is very simple and repeatable and scalable, that it doesn't matter. Uh, if it's something that's going to sit at minus 20 degrees for 48 hours uh, in, in, in our facility, um, that's, you know, that's time that we have to pay an operator to be there. That's time that we have to pay the analytical chemist to prepare uh, to do all the QC work on the solvents and the uh, materials uh, going into the reactor. That's time that we have to pay a process chemist to oversee the chemistry that's going on inside the reactor, that is expensive. <laughs> sure. And so um, that, you know, that's the sort of thing that will run you. Um, in terms of molecular weight, I've worked with things that are well into the low thousands. I think a lot of uh, younger chemists who may be listening to this will wonder how their careers will evolve over time. So starting with an entry-level position, what sorts of uh, both scientific and managerial uh, uh, responsibilities uh, come your way? Yeah, that's actually really interesting and something that has been a, a huge attempted focus of uh, my social media work and kind of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes is really trying to understand it at a, at a, at a statistical level. Broadly speaking, I think, um, but you know, one of the core th things that drives my thinking about how I talk about chemical employment is that we 
chemists would and engineers would never would never um, accept single anecdotes for for as viable explanations for uh, chemical phenomena or processes or anything like that. You wouldn't say, well, I have a friend who ran that reaction once and it worked pretty well. That's not, that's not science. Uh, it's the beginning of science, but it's not science. But we're very willing to have our perceptions of employment in our field basically run anecdotally and say, well, most of my professor's students have gone on to jobs. Therefore, this is fine. And you know what? It is fine for the most part. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. And, and uh, attempting to bring some social science into chemical employment is really what I try to do on a regular basis. And I'm, I don't feel that I'm particularly successful at it, but that is the primary lens that I use. So I'm going to go back and answer your question, which is that like, I don't know what the traditional path is. Uh, some people would uh, burst into our conversation here and say, well, there is no traditional path. Um, and, you know, I, my answer to that is, uh, uh let's try to get some numbers here. And the problem, of course, is that we don't really have any good cohort analysis of what happens. Broadly speaking, uh, chemists, PhD chemists who enter industry fund traditionally start uh, entry-level positions are at the bench. I don't know how many entry-level positions start at the bench while some of them start somewhere else within the company, you know, behind a computer. I do know that the very basic sales positions in our industry can sometimes take somebody who's basically a fresh graduate student um, and have them do the functions of sales. They send them to some kind of a course uh, where they teach them, you know, this is how you do uh, scientific equipment sales or, or scientific services sales. And then from that point on, it's it's a sales process or regulatory or what have you. Uh, eventually, uh, at some point, you'll be offered the opportunity to become a supervisor of um, and mentor to younger scientists. At, uh, and then at some point, you'll be a leader of scientists if that is something. And then oftentimes, there's a... Um, at your very large companies, there's a research management track and then there's a business management track. And, and, and I am speaking a little bit out of turn here. I believe the old traditional chemical manufacturers, the Dow's and DuPont's of the world had a very clear pathway and also kind of a set professional development uh, system. And I think that for the old traditional pharmaceutical companies, there is somewhat less of a structured system, although there are tracks. Um, and then for your newer biotech companies, I'm going to guess it's of echo of the large ones that are different in their whatever uh, company dependent ways. Why did you start ChemJobber? 
I started ChemJobber because it frustrated me that I had no idea what the job market looked like. I just knew that the back pages of CNN that had the job seemed to be emptier in November of 2008 or October of 2008. And the lack of quantitative data really bothered me. Econometrics, uh, the measurement of the economy, um, you know, economics is a lot about psychology and feeling, right? Money is sort of a weird concept. It's not really, it's just like, it's a store of value. And, you know, because there's this green cloth in your wallet and you pull it out and it has a picture of George Washington or Harriet Tubman on there, um, uh, you say, ah, this, is, this has value. Um, that's a feeling. Um, but uh, jobs are things that people need and there should be numbers attached to them. <laughs> and so that's what I really wanted to do. And then from there, um, I started to tackle things that I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about uh, Sherry Sanji and um, her uh, death in a laboratory uh, incident at UCLA. I wanted to write about um, work-life balance and mental health and how I sort of made it through graduate school with okay mental health, not definitely not great. And I felt like nobody else was talking about it. In 2008, you were part of a, I don't know if you viewed it this way, but a, a cohort with Derek Lowe and Paul Brocker, uh, <laughs> of these uh, chemistry bloggers that were the talk of water coolers and break rooms in chemistry graduate uh, departments. Um, did you did did you feel this uh, that that you were part of a movement at the time, or how did you view that? Oh, oh, of course. Although I would consider myself essentially of the third wave, right? Derek is always the first. Um, and then there were a lot of people who came um, within science broadly uh, and uh, chemistry in particular, I would say Dylan Stiles is probably the, uh, the one that kind of did what everybody else is doing while Derek has just been Derek. Um, and then you know, uh, Dylan Stiles with Tender Button and then I think it was, uh, I would say it, it was uh, uh, Paul with Kem Bark, who kind of like, this is, this is what, Kem, Bar Kem Jobber is not that different than Kem Bark, uh, although Paul is a, a, a much more comprehensive and, and uh, better thinker than I am. And then there was uh, the Kem blog with uh, Kyle Finch Sigmati, um, that uh, kind of came uh, around. And so the interplay between those, you know, uh, the Derricks and the Pauls and, and the, the, the chem blog uh, kind of birthed chem jobber. Uh, and uh, so I would say I, I, I am a, a, a third wave chemistry blogger. Although uh, 12 years later, uh, 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 Paul blogs, occasionally and the chem blog is uh mm -hmm. it was fun to be at least uh adjacent to the development of chemistry blogging as 
Paul sat so close to me in graduate school that our our chairs touched in the back <laughs> and and people had to ask us to like scoot our chairs in to get through because of course the desks were in the lab back when they designed uh, <laughs> organic chemistry labs to have that arrangement. How do you have time to be chem jobber in addition to your job responsibilities? Or how do you make time? It seems unbelievable to to us, the field. I make time by making time. Um, it's definitely something that's always in the margin. So, uh, you know, Twitter, it, it, blogging is hard now in modern times because you have to, like, or I can't blog on a phone. You have to sit down and you have to sit down at the computer and you have to write 50 or 100 words or 200 words or, you know, if you're really getting rocking, um, you know, 400 or 500 words. Um, and so I do that at home on my computer and I, I schedule posts to, to, to pop up at 6 a.m. on Eastern time. Um, Twitter, it's just easier because I, I I was very late to the smartphone revolution, but I have one now. Well, you have quite a following on Twitter now. Um, yeah, I, I really think that it's that's just an aspect of b being on Twitter for 10 years. You're and posting content that people are interested in and affects them. <laughs> uh, why do you prefer to be anonymous? Uh, I prefer to be anonymous because it offers me some level of freedom to... Uh, and, and it's something that I, I'm not, I, I uh, it is a privilege and it's a responsibility. It allows me to speak more freely. It allows me to put a really bright line between my professional life and my personal life. And it's a responsibility in that, you know, I should not use that uh, irresponsibly, um, I, I try not to write things that I would not say to someone's face. It's a responsibility in that uh, it gives me some freedom to comment on institutions and systems that need to change because of uh, things that are not fair or not just. In retrospect, uh, part of me wishes that I could have started molecular podcasting anonymously because there are some <laughs> things that it is uh, hard to say as a tenured faculty member at a, at a major research institution. Right, right. What are some of the most prominent ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the chemical job market? Um so embarrassingly, I am on deadline for a column about this. Um, I would say that the most prominent way that it's affected things is, is that it's, it's, it's obviously going, it has had both immediate and long-term effects on academic employment. So the chemical industry uh, in general, um, seem, the pharmaceutical industry seems to be doing just fine. Uh, the, uh, the old time, uh, or, or the, the core chemical manufacturing, I think is more impacted. So if you think about, uh, if you're a maker of polymers that end up, especially polymers that are extraordinarily fire resistant for aircrafts, you are in a bad, bad place right now because ain't nobody buying a brand new plane. 
um, anytime soon. And so that's that's really bad. Um, oil and gas. Uh, I I don't know if uh, if you've watched how little you've uh, commuted this this year, uh, but uh, you know people stopped using the products of the oil and gas industry uh, to get themselves to work this year. And that's going to have an impact. Yeah. And, and in my case, I also made a vanity purchase of a plug-in hybrid. So I, right. I've even compounded the problem. for Right, them. right, right. You know, it, it'd be uh, even better, I guess, if you had gone from like an F-350 to a plug-in hybrid. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so that that's the industry side of things. That's my viewpoint of it. It may be correct and maybe not correct, but that's the way I see it. Um, I should put in a, a comment about government, uh, uh, which also folds into the academic problem. So the the most immediate impact that I see is is that uh, hiring for the 2020 uh, 2021 fall uh, hiring cycle. So this is for assistant professor positions with a start date of August 1st or September 1st 20 or what or July 1st more likely uh, 2021. Those are about 40% of where we would expect them to be. And that is a major impact. Uh, if you think about the ripple effects that's going to have when over half of the positions that you would normally expect to be there disappear. Um, this is based off of my work with uh, Andrew Spath on the chemical chemistry faculty jobs list. And so that's going to have ripple effects, right? You have um, uh, 350 uh, tenure track faculty that would have been hired, but will not be hired now. So that means that there are 350 postdoctoral positions that are going to continue into 2021 and 2022. Uh, that's going to have an impact on um Think about the economic impact of that, right? That that means that uh, st the startup, the money wrapped up in startup packages will not flow, um, and that's basically a direct connection to the the broader chemical enterprise and ultimately the the, the national economy or the world economy as a whole. Um, the we also don't really have a full picture of how this has affected universities and uh, and higher education as a whole, especially because higher education is one of the fields that uh, seems to be impacted the most, both by the, the shutdown itself um, and also, um, you know, I, it's just not really clear to me and I, I don't, I have I I'll, I confess I haven't looked at what revenue numbers look like for um, private universities or flagship state universities and the like. Um, but with a lower economy, that means somewhat less money into state and local coffers, which means ultimately um, lower support for higher education, public higher education. So all of that 
it seems to me uh, doesn't bode well for 2021 or 2022. Um, That's interesting. I hadn't even considered the uh, the extension of current postdoctoral positions as a result of 350 uh, people who are not on the faculty job market or who, who, who maybe are, but because of the, the limitations in the number of positions that will put stress on uh, on university laboratories and uh, and their grant sources to try to find a way to continue to pay these salaries um, that's that's interesting yeah I mean and, and you know hey maybe maybe I, I'm so let's let's take those 350 people um, uh, presumably, Many of them are industry eligible and or would be willing to, uh, if circumstances dictated, uh, to take a position in industry. Um, that, that you know, some percentage of them might do so. So let's say it's 100 people, it's still 200. Um, who are kind of left in limbo, and then yeah, there's an there's an impact to PIs and. Um, uh, Presumably, that's uh, stress on funding agencies as well. So, um, yeah, there's a, it's it's a non-trivial ripple effect. Are there any silver linings in the chemical industry vis-a-vis COVID nineteen? For example, expansion of non-wovens for masks, uh, PPE, <laughs> right? But right. even you know uh, RNA vaccines or right, viral vector right. vaccines. Yeah, so I I fundamentally don't know. Um, I think so. Let's take Pfizer as an example. I don't. It would be really interesting to understand what. Okay, so I'm gonna try to work backwards here. Um, I'm sure that if you're a manufacturer of melt blown poly polypropylene strands, like business is great. Um, but the problem is, is that all your other business, right? You don't just make PPE like 3M is actually the last I saw not doing so great, right? Cause their whole business is not really making PPE. Their whole business is the rest of the economy, which is this, thing that is really difficult for everybody to understand that until we until we we cannot live with the virus and have a normal bustling economy um and, you know and it gets back to economics as feeling i do not uh uh family members who have medical conditions and i think it's pretty safe to say that uh Underlying conditions for COVID-19 are quite broad. Uh, it's not just one particular syndrome that people have to worry about. It's large swaths of the population cannot participate fully in life. Therefore, they cannot participate fully in the economy. So until we uh, get everybody vaccinated, uh, we're not going to have a quote-unquote normal economy. Um one thing that's struck me about your most recent posts is the extent to which um, 
losses in the oil and gas industry have affected the overall uh, uh, prospects of, of hiring in the chemical industry. And I think it surprises some university students that oil and gas is so, I mean, in retrospect, it seems obvious that it would hire most chemists and chemical engineers, but a lot of the faculty members come from uh, they have never worked in the oil and gas industry. They've never worked in chemical manufacturing. And do you think that departments underrate the extent to which oil and gas uh, jobs dominate uh, the chemical industry? And do you think something should be done about that? I'm I'm not sure that, for example, oil and gas uh, industry employment of uh, chemists in particular is a enormous driver of chemical employment of, you know, quote unquote, uh, chemists. At the same time, I think that you're right. It is the ultimate impact of kind of every aspect of the economy that we, you know, uh, I think on a broad political level, we sort of say, yes, you know, gas prices are very important to the economy, but we don't really um, kind of understand that the, the deeply uh, complex and networked nature of that. It's also a weird aspect of chemical manufacturing that um, kind of, and I, and I say that in its most broad sense, right? That it, uh, um, that it's basically any company that makes something from chemicals, which is, you know, uh, it will be interesting to see how, oh, so what I was going to say about Pfizer is, is that, you know, we all think Pfizer is going to make a bajillion dollars because it is the manufacturer of the vaccine. And I don't know about you, but like the number that I can come up off the top of my head, which if I were to be offered the vaccine, and have an ability to know that it would not, uh, by, by giving it to me now, I would not be harming somebody else who should take my place in line. Like that number of like, I would pay this amount is very, very high. It's, you know, the largest, probably the largest discretionary purchase I would ever make. It's the rest of Pfizer's portfolio that we don't really know or well, I suspect they're a public company. I we do know, but right, like doctors' offices, they closed. Elective medical procedures, they didn't happen. My gosh, it's also it's even impacting like cancer treatment, which you would think is the fundamentally something that uh, the the COVID um, that uh, you would think would continue through a pandemic, but that's still being affected. I guess what I'm really saying is that you would think the pharma companies are doing really great. And for the most part, we haven't, we don't have evidence that they're doing poorly, but it's just the rest of the economy that's not doing so great. And I think that that will have probably is having immediate impact and then probably will have a, a long-term impact on the economy and that this is that this is one of the core things that i think is really difficult to understand about chemical employment versus the rest of the economy is is that chemists are uh, chemi chemical employment is pro cyclical when the economy is doing well chemists are doing well and vice versa um if 
the economy is poor like it was during the Great Recession, chemists didn't do so well. And that that's 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 a really difficult aspect of of <laughs> all of this. Sure. Do you think that some of these that some economic um, economics training, um, maybe some uh, finance, you mentioned that your younger colleagues in engineering have a good handle on how to run a spreadsheet, um, how to do an NPV calculation. Do you think any of this training is useful for chemists? Um, and I guess you, you could answer that question, but more broadly, is there anything you would add or change about the undergraduate chem, uh, chemistry curriculum? I'm always kind of curious as to like, how much business should a chemist learn? Are we saying like, let, let's, let's, you know, let's bound this, this discussion. Are we saying PhD chemists should get out of graduate school with an MBA? No, we're not. Are we saying that they should take a year long business course? No, probably not. If you had like a a one month short course, maybe, uh, you know, uh, like a one week seminar that would probably cover everything. Um, you know, like you say, NPV. So, uh, I'm not an engineer. I believe NPV stands for, uh, net present value. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Um, so that's basically a calculation of how much something in the future is worth to you now, uh, that if I, promised you a dollar on December 31st, 2022, what is your discount? Would you be willing, if your choice was a dollar in 2022 or 25 cents today, which would you take? And it depends on, you know, feelings uh, and also math. You know, if the answer was a thousand dollars in 2022 or a quarter today, you would take the thousand dollars. But I think it would be valuable. I think it would help scientists or professional chemists, which is what I kind of consider graduate school to be about. I think it would help them understand why the business people make decisions the way they make them. What are their parameters? What are their bounds? Uh, we all know that Professor Smith, she cannot buy five more HPLCs because she didn't get that uh, that R01 that she was looking for. And that's a parameter that everybody sort of says, oh, okay, I get it. Uh, but when the stock price for the company drops by a quarter, nobody, uh, like, it's really not clear to the average scientist, like, hey guys, why are you laying off 10% of us or, you know, 5% of us or whatever, like, don't you have a savings account somewhere that you could like pull out to like fund R and D and people just, and I'm not saying that the business people are always right or whatever. I'm just saying that like whatever cold rational calculations you're making, scientists tend not to understand them when they're at that scale. For the undergraduates, eh, I'm not really sure. Like undergraduate chemistry, in my opinion, and I'm no chemical educator, should be about understanding the breadth and depth and and uh, width of, of chemistry and not even not even the full depth. Just know that like when you drop the penny into the well, like you're not gonna hear a sound for a long time.
I have a few final questions about your uh, your role as a uh, as a blogger and as um, somebody who is a frequent contributor to social media. Um, what is what is your favorite medium now? You have blogging, uh, the CNE column, and uh, and and Twitter. And which do you uh, enjoy the most? I think over the years I've gotten more interested in interacting with people and twitter is a really fun place to do that so the problem with twitter chemistry the great thing about chemistry twitter is that it is great the bad thing about chemistry twitter is that it exists in the real world and the real world of twitter and of course the real world of Twitter for the last four years. That's the sort of down, that, that's the sort of uh, uh, a negative aspect of, of Twitter. But yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. Uh, the blog is great. I still, I still uh, work on it and think that, you know, it is a craft that I have yet to master. I may be wrong about this, but I don't think you tweet out too many of your posts um, is there a reason for that? Or maybe I'm completely wrong. There was a period of time where I would tweet out my posts twice a day and it just started to feel like work and the audiences between Twitter and and the blog seemed to diverge. And so then it didn't begin to matter. I think that if I do really like one of the great things, like, you know, the, the people who do like, uh, uh, 20, 20 tweet threads, right? They should get a blog. Nobody's going to sit there and read your 400, uh, 400 word essay, 280 characters at a time, unless you're like, uh, you know, a government official or something like that. And even then you don't do that. What you do is you tweet a picture, which is the worst of your 400 words. Um, and it's just, yeah. I mean, in that sense, blogging is a much better medium. Uh, but my, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And, and yeah, so for a while there, I would do it. And uh, once, like once it, it's gotten down to like once every three months, I'll tweet one of my posts. Does the duck have a name? Uh, yes, technically it is called the duck of sabotage, uh, because I, uh, I attempted to give this duck away a long time ago by, uh, uh, running a, a post about uh, laboratory sabotage and whether or not it actually happened because it's very much a friend of a friend sort of conversation amongst graduate students that, you know, you heard the story about some other lab where somebody did something awful to somebody else's experiment. I see uh, now that it's sitting in front of you that the duck is much more massive than <laughs> I had envisioned it from your Twitter avatar. <laughs> It's really enormous. I mean, it's it's this it's this huge thing, and um, you know, initially I had wanted to I wanted to it out of my house, right? Uh, but now, of course, it's it's ten years old and twelve years. It's old. also a much more high. Uh, it's a much higher modulus material than I was expecting. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, there, I, for a while there, there was a kind of a boring Twitter inside joke that, you know, it's a ceramic duck. Uh. <laughs> um, uh, just uh, quickly to wrap up, are you working on site or remotely? 
Uh, a little bit of both, but mostly on site with a mask and, and being uh, as socially distanced as possible. As a chemist, which COVID vaccine candidate excites you the most and which would you take? So obviously you want the most effective one, but uh, I, I have, I will take the first one that I can get. Um, I don't, I mean, I, okay, that's not true. I will, I will say as me, a logistics nerd, the Moderna, excuse me, the Pfizer vaccine with its redonkulous uh, logistics cold chain is just like, uh, this is the best, right? I mean, this is the sort of stuff that it, it kind of represents the ridiculous ability of American logistics networks to be able to do this sort of thing that, you know, we're going to design this box and this box is going to need 23 kilos of dry ice every 24 hours. Like, can we do it? And the answer is, yes, we can do it. <laughs> and, and, and it's... <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. It's just completely like, and, and then like, it, it's funny because like, it, it's the whole like uh, uh, urban legend about Americans designing a, a uh, like a, a, a pen that works in space upside down while the Russians use a pencil, you know, which of course is an urban legend, but like really a, kind of deeply appeals to like the, the outlandish uh uh, science and engineering nerd in me, I guess. The interesting thing is what a what a chemical or molecular engineering problem it is, because genetically it's probably very similar to the Moderna vaccine. But there's something about the uh, the lipid formulation uh, that that is different. Um, for the record, um, I'm a participant in the AstraZeneca tr uh, Oxford trial, and I was a little bit disappointed to know that they didn't realize that the half-dose, full-dose uh, <laughs> regimen was more effective before they designed the study in the U.S. Oh, no. So I got, if I assuming I got it, but I don't think the uh, adverse reaction that I had was was psychosomatic, but who knows, it, it could have been. Um, so maybe, maybe there's a 62% likelihood that, that I'm protected. Right, right. I, have you have you heard the rumors that people on on online are uh, beginning to like uh, clinical trial patients are basically comparing symptoms or adverse reactions and saying like, I think I'm I think I, I received, you know, active material versus like, I think I received placebo. I haven't seen that specifically, but I would be shocked if, uh, you know, fewer than than 60% of participants in a 50-50 uh, RCT uh, or <laughs> said that they got the placebo. I, I'd imagine that, that because of psychosomatics, most of them have made up all kinds of symptoms uh you know because you're inclined to believe that you got it but yep 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 yeah so I, I it'll be really interesting to see what happens when everything's unblinded cj you've been really generous with your time um is there anything you wish i'd asked but didn't no no this was uh this was really wide wide ranging and an incredible honor thank you very much darren